Flip to Proverbs 15. How to tame the tongue. Hopefully you grab one of the sheets on the way in. If not, there are a few back there, it looks like, on the table. I'll reference that as we go a little bit later, but I thought that would be helpful to uh, go over with the kids or just a reminder for yourself. Sometimes it's good to see the visual reminders like that. Proverbs chapter 15, and uh, later on we'll flip to Ephesians 4, but I'm going to read Proverbs 15, 1 through 4. So let's stand for the reading of God's Word together as we give attention to our Lord. Proverbs 15, verse 1, these are the words of God. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge look good, but the mouth of fools pours forth folly. The eyes of Yahweh are in every place, watching the good, excuse me, watching the evil and the good. A tongue that brings healing is a tree of life, but perversion in it breaks the spirit. An ignorant fool spurns his father's discipline, but he who keeps reproof is prudent. I'm going to go through verse 7. The house of the righteous has much treasure, but the income of the wicked there is trouble. The lips of the wise disperse knowledge, but the hearts of fools are not so. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we ask that your Holy Spirit would draw us close as the scriptures are read and as the word is proclaimed. Let the word of faith be on our lips and in our hearts and let all other words slip away. May there be one voice we hear today, the voice of truth and grace, even Christ our great shepherd. In his name we pray, amen. You can be seated. Well, in the first week of this uh, Life Together series, we talked about the importance and inevitability of Christian community. Its importance lies in the fact that we as image bearers are relational. We as image bearers are relational because God as a trinity is in fact relational. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, uh, living in an eternal state, the Godhead as a relational uh, being. When we exhibit self-sacrifice, when we exhibit love and genuine care for others, we display the nature and character of God in our image bearing. So when, when the Bible tells us about all these one anotherisms, we're, we're to do them not just because, oh, I need to do a one anotherism here and serve this person. We're to, to do it because God himself is relational. So the importance of learning how to function properly in community cannot be overstated, especially when this call is grounded in God himself. And I have to just say, sort of as a side comment here, that uh, I, I really don't know that Christians have figured this out really well, to be honest. Um, many, many, many churches struggle through how to do life together with different personalities, uh, different gifts, different sorts of things, uh, it can be very, very challenging to navigate these waters, especially as a church like ours is growing. But it, but it is important. Now, the inevitability of Christian community, and what I mean by that is it's rooted in God's plan for the nations. As the gospel is proclaimed, men, women, and children are brought to redemption by the Holy Spirit and thus are transformed. So hearts are renewed, by the work of the Spirit, covenant baptism is administered, and Christ builds his church through those things. So it's inevitable. That's just how it works. You're brought into this thing. You didn't choose it. Uh, that's just the way Christ has set it up. So because Christian community is rooted in the nature, character, and purposes of God, 
we can conclude that any human relationship, whether that's just basic friendship uh, with a, with a, uh, in a marriage or uh, with your brother or sister, whatever, any human relationship that, do, that does not possess the living God at the center is, is thus qualitatively less than what it is supposed to be. So e- even atheists in, 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 in the, you know, the pagan tribes somewhere in the you know, jungle of South America, uh, even, even they have relationships, but if you don't have the triune God at the center, it's not what it could be or what it's supposed to be. That's the idea. So we began with the importance and inevitability of, of life together in community because of what Christ has done in melding us together by his Holy Spirit. Now in week two, we tackled the, the sin of people-pleasing because it quite possibly, I think it's quite possibly one of the greatest thre- threats and dangers for trying to do life together so if you were to ask me, okay, if that's the greatest threat, what's second? Well, probably narcissistic behavior is next in line. In order to protect and guard the communal bond that Christ has given to us as a gift, we must resist fearing men and subsequently prioritize the fear of God above all human relationships. The fear of God must be the thing that dictates all human relationships in a marriage, in parenting, friendship, job, you name it, that is the guiding principle there. And then following this, last week, uh, we looked at the process of change and what the Bible teaches us about spiritual growth and maturation. So the series thus far, if I could kind of boil it down so you get an idea, okay, where is he going? First, community is a gift to steward, and it requires all of us. Second, God must be feared above all in order to even maintain that. And then third, from last week, sanctification must be something we actively pursue. Now, tonight we're going to deal with another problem, something that the Bible frequently warns about, as we read there in James 3, and that is the devastation that can occur when the tongue is untamed. The devastation that can occur when the tongue is untamed. Uh, Rick Thomas writes this, quote, Biblical fellowship, participation in the spirit or community, means the sharing with one another individual with another individual, or it could be several, with another individual, your deepest and richest relationship. So we're supposed to share with one another something, and what is that? Your relationship with God, he says. So to truly connect with someone, Thomas argues, and I agree with him, that Thomas argues that the fullness of our relationship with Christ must be shared with others. So, and part of the reason he's arguing that, and he's right, is because we can talk all day about the similarities we have. Theological convictions, or eschatology positions, or, or we all really like guns, and we like freedom, and, you know, we like this, that, and the other. And that is great, but the deepest way to even connect with someone is through the living God and sharing that relationship. The good, the bad, and the ugly. The triune God is the origin of all relational activity and any activity between image bearers that shares in the glories of our individual relationship with God is sure to be blessed. So you have two people, individuals, in a relationship with God separately in some sense, right? Because we're unique in that way. We're all each in the image of God. We're unique. But then that relationship, vertical relationship with God, then has a horizontal element. And the only way to make the horizontal work is to make sure the vertical works, if that makes sense. Stated another way, each of us possesses the treasure of the kingdom as heirs of Christ, and it's our job to steward that treasure with each other in communication and in life. So if if people don't trust you, 
or perhaps you don't trust someone else, whatever that, the case, because of prior past ex experience, if people don't trust you, they won't steward that gift with you. Um, they're not going to steward that gift with you, the good, the bad, and the ugly about life with Christ. They're not going to really share those things with you. And so at best, you'll just kind of, and the church is notorious for putting a false self forward because the inner self is full of turmoil and trauma, um, you know, childhood problems, insecurities, all of those things. And so the, the church is, is notorious for being a masquerade. Even Spurgeon uh, spent many a time preaching against that. Um, there is no place for a false self. If we can't be our true selves in community, then we're doing something wrong. So, and the same thing, whether that's, again, your marriage relationship and, and getting into the nitty and gritty of, of the depths of, of your life, your upbringing, your story, what God is showing you, what he's convicting you of, the sins you're working through. If you can't even talk on that most basic level, you're not going to have a healthy relationship. Worst yet, of course, if your tongue presents itself as an obstacle to the relationship's growth, then problems will inexorably ensue. So the Bible has something very important to say about the taming of the tongue. So let's go to the teaching and the testimony of God's Word. Look at Proverbs 15, verse 1 again. One of uh, my favorite Proverbs. There's a few of those that I enjoy. This is the first one. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Now, in a scenario where strife and conflict seems unavoidable, the gentle tongue does better than a hard one. The soft and gentle answer diffuses the wrath of man. That's basically what it's saying. Meekness de-escalates, anger inflames or escalates. Now remember this, remember that when you're speaking with your husband or your wife, right? Meekness de-escalates a situation. Anger inflames the situation. Now the irony of this proverb lies in the fact that the soft answer is actually hard, meaning that it's efficient for the job. The soft answer is hard, it does the hard work of being doing the job it's supposed to do. The hard answer, though, is really soft, meaning it's inefficient, leading more to more strife. Proverbs 25, 15 is similar. When one is slow to anger, a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue breaks the bone. You think about a bone and how hard a bone is. A soft answer breaks the bone. It can melt steel, that sort of thing. The anger of man, in other words, bellows up in his heart, a gentle, quiet word throws water on it. In other words, uh, a fire is not extinguished with gasoline, right? <laughs> you don't try to put out a fire with putting gasoline on it, and that's what you do with a hard word. Scorn is best met with silence, as our Lord demonstrated while he was on trial. When he was spat upon, his beard plucked, he was mocked, openly mocked, cursed at. And how did Jesus respond? Not with anger, not with scorn, not with more scorn that was already coming for him. None of that. He had a soft, gentle answer for them. And sometimes we answer the fool according to his folly. This is Proverbs 26. Sometimes we answer the fool according to his folly, lest he be wise. We, sometimes we have to speak and we have to show and demonstrate the ridiculousness of the worldview or the, or the thing that's being postulated. But sometimes we don't answer a fool according to his folly, lest we be like him, because we may not be mature enough to answer in that regard, and then we look just as foolish as he does. So humility is always the antidote to wrath. 
remember that next time you get in a, in a verbal tussle with your spouse. Humility is always the antidote to wrath. Look at verse 2. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge look good, but the mouth of fools pours forth folly. For the wise one, the tongue, has the ability to present knowledge in front of others in such a way as to make it enticing and enchanting. The listeners will see this knowledge as advantageous and thus beneficial. So if you have a tongue of wisdom, people will listen to you. They will respect what you say. Uh, you know, you all can think of people that you just know. You know, maybe it's a grandparent who speaks wisdom to you and you just know they always got something good, another a gold nugget for you. Uh, maybe it's somebody you respect. It makes knowledge look um, advantageous. It makes it look beneficial. But fools, however, when using the tongue, they demonstrate, of course, their lack of wisdom or their folly. The tongue then displays and presents the heart for all to see. Never forget the connection between your mouth and your heart. Because that connection is more dangerous than your connection of your mouth to your stomach. The mouth and the heart connection is, is a stronger thing. We usually don't think of it that way. But it is. The heart, the, the tongue, displays and presents the heart so that everybody can see what's going on. So if you hear someone complaining... They have a heart thing they're wrestling with. If you see someone pouring forth folly, like what comes out of the White House every five minutes, there are heart problems there. Right? That's how this works. When you, what you say reveals your heart and it, it can commend your hearers or reveal to them your folly and foolishness. Uh, Proverbs 25.11 reminds us, like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. Either way, what you say comes from the fountain of the heart. Verse 3. The eyes of Yahweh are in every place, watching the evil and the good. You might think, why is this in the center of this? And there's talk about the tongue. Well, I'll tell you why. It's, it's brilliant, actually. There are no secrets, sins, or sorrows that go unnoticed in the eyes of Yahweh. Nothing goes unnoticed. For the righteous, Yahweh's perfect superintendence is a comfort. It's a great comfort. I've seen this I, in the funerals I've done. You, you do the funeral for someone who knew Christ, who celebrated Christ, who lived a, a life of wisdom. Those funerals are a complete joy to do. I look, I just, I love them because it's a celebration. But I've been asked to do funerals for people I don't know and, and, and people that just, they've hated God their entire life and they have lived a destructive life. Those are very difficult funerals to do. And there's a reason for that, because Yahweh's perfect sovereignty and superintendence and His providence over all things is a comfort to the, to the people of God. But for the unrighteous fool, it's an occasion for trepidation. Psalm 139.4 says, Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Yahweh, you know it all. God is close to us. God is closer to us than we are to ourselves. I think Augustine may have said something similar like that. God is closer to us than we are to ourselves. Think about that. He's closer to you are than you are to yourself. Could anything escape his notice? Solomon warns in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 2, Do not be hasty with your mouth or impulsive in your heart to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven, but you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Verse 4, 
A tongue that brings healing is a tree of life, but perversion in it breaks the spirit. The tree of life is a symbol of God's medicinal healing for weary sinners. It is the salve of his salvation. It is the fruit of his covenant. The tongue, when exercised with words of healing, becomes that sort of tree of life for the listener. Pure words, precious words, words of encouragement that are profitable to the hearer are like the application of gauze to a wound. Harsh and perverse words impale the conscience, pollute the heart, and break the spirit. Proverbs 18.21 reads, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Love it, what is it? Well, either way, if you love the death that comes from the tongue, you will eat of its fruit. Or if you love the life that it you know, comes as a result, the fruit of, of life, then you will eat of it as well. Now flip with me to Ephesians uh, 4.29 real quick. In your New Testament, go past the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. You get into First and Second Corinthians, then Galatians, then Ephesians. Ephesians 4.29. It says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for building up that, excuse me, building up what is needed so that it will give grace to those who hear. Now the word unwholesome uh, translated uh, in the ESV, it's corrupting. But the word means it's something that's unsound, something that is foul uh, and or putrid, something just disgusting. Paul says not to let any rotten filth come out of your mouth. Now, filthy hearts produce filthy words on a filthy tongue, right? That's the order. Filthy hearts, filthy words, filthy tongue. But no, no coarse joking, um, not cutting words of anger, you sort of get a feeling for what that is. I love a good joke. Trust me, there's a lot, a lot of fodder in our culture right now. The memes are in, out in full force. God bless the memes. But there is a line, and I, usually we know what that line is. You, you kind of know when something is just crude, crude and offensive, if, if it, it you know, besmirches God and, and, and makes you know, Jesus look like a fool, or there's TV shows that do all that sort of nonsense out there, but you just kind of know, but that's the difference. You just, you, you kind of know what those are, but no coarse joking, no, not cutting words of anger towards someone. Filth itself must be far from the tongue. Psalm 34, 13 urges, guard your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. So what, we know what shouldn't come out of our mouths, but what should come out of our mouths. Well, Paul says that which builds up, that which brings someone to a place where they should be. That's the idea of building up someone, um, someone who uh, may be struggling and you're offering a fit word for them so that they are built up. You're kind of like picking them off off the floor, straighten them up, dust off the jacket. You're, you're building them up. You're trying to assist them and help them. Kind of what we call encouragement, right? Something, something gracious, 
something flavorful. Paul says in Colossians 4, 6, something that is seasoned with salt. Our our speech should be seasoned. It should be like a well-marinated dinner, something that's been simmering. And it's a delight to the eyes. It's a delight to the nose. And we enjoy it and we partake of it. That is the type of speech that we should be saying to one another. Speech should be attractive. It should look good. It should be attractive. It should be delectable. Um, And ultimately, it's supposed to be truthful, as the Heidelberg Catechism teaches us. So speech should flow out of a heart that is set on holiness, set on righteousness, and set on faithfulness. Blustering lips destroy the hearer. Wholesome speech encourages the hearer. um, Imperiousness and domineering tongues tear the listener to shreds. You know, parents who have, have been nothing but domineering and irritated in anger at their children. We've seen that in, in stores a time or two. Saw that once at the soccer field. Everybody's walking and this lady's yelling at her child just so loud and so cutting in front of everyone. It's like, what is going on in her heart? Like, she may be wounded, but she's wounding her kid too. Speech should be tempered, it should be calculated. That's why it's better to think before you say, as we try to teach our children, right? Because we adults, kids, we don't have it figured out fully yet either. Something you will have to wrestle with your entire life. Think before you speak, right? It's like a basic thing, but how many of us don't? Uh, Our speech should be anointed with righteousness. It should build people up in love and encouragement. Washington Irving once said, the tongue is the only tool that gets sharper with use. The more you use it, the sharper it gets, and the more tempted you will be to not guard it with a door, as the psalmist says. You you let it go, and when you let it go, it just, time after time, it gets worse and worse and worse, and next thing you know, you have cut someone. So how do we tame the tongue? How might we exhibit self-control in this area of our lives? Well, before I give you on the sheet the five steps to controlling the tongue, I just sort of um, worked through that this week, and I wanted you to have a printout for it, but I want to I give you a few more verses to help you understand the wide swath of teaching from Scripture on this topic. Psalm 15 uh, verse 3 tells us that the righteous man He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Um, We also know from and learn from Proverbs 16, 32, that he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his own spirit than he who captures a city. So you, uh, there's another similar proverb on that topic of anger. Um, is like a city, uh, the man who can't contain his, his anger and his spirit uh, is like a, a city without walls. He's just defenseless. So he's, he's ruined himself. So now he's opened himself up to all sorts of destruction in his life. This, this is the same thing. He who rules his own spirit. We're going to come back to that in another week, but note that phrase. Now, as to be expected, the tongue can be a great vehicle for great harm. Like James warns, it can be a fire starter, incinerating anything and everything in its path. And the biblical prohibition against using the tongue in this way is situated within our relationship to God and man. So how, do you, how are we supposed to use the tongue? Well, you have to start with how you use it with God. How do you use your tongue with God? And as image bearers, 
We are called to self-governance, self-leadership, self, uh, self-rule, and we are called to tempered righteousness in our speech and in our conduct. A sin-sick heart is directed towards an absolute that is not God. So if you have used your tongue to cut someone, you have formed an absolute in your heart that is not God. That absolute has been directed on the self or some idol. So he or she in this situation can only temper his or her speech to the degree that they conform externally to the law word of God. Now, I'm mostly speaking here of unregenerate, um, those who are not Christians. Um, you, you, can, you, know, you can tame your speech. The unbeliever can tame his speech, but only externally. His heart is still needs the redemption of Christ. But what about the person who is righteous in Christ, the woman who has the gospel lodged in her regenerated heart? Well, he or she, they will demonstrate discernment. Proverbs 17, 27 gives us further wisdom. He who holds back his words has knowledge. And he who has a cool spirit is a man of discernment. You think of like the Mr. Miyagi types, you know. Doesn't say much. Maybe 200 words in a day. But what he does say is like, brilliant, it's gold. You know, that, that, that type of thing. I think most of us could afford to hold back and show knowledge and discernment, what we say. Uh, the fool gives vent to his spirit, that sort of thing. We'll get to that in a second. But the Bible gives us several different metaphors, and I want you to kind of get these metaphors because I, I find them interesting, the way the Bible does this, and it helps us uh, explain the nature of the tongue. Remember this, though. Words express the heart. Keep that in mind. Words express the heart. There are no words that are disconnected from the heart. That's not a thing. It doesn't exist. Words are always from the heart. Proverbs 29.11 illustrates it. A fool lets out all of his spirit, but a wise man holds it back. The metaphors that I found, I did just a simple word search this, this week. Didn't take much time, but you can do this sort of thing online and just search the word tongue. And it's amazing how much you can find just by searching an English word, not even getting into the Hebrew or Greek. But the tongue, according to Psalm 45, verse 1, is a scribal note taker. That one was perplexing to me. I had to look that one up. In this case, the writer, he stews on a good word, thoughts simmering as he ponders the Lord and the promise to the king. And the point here is remaining silent, the tongue can take good notes. Because the tongue isn't just used to say words. It's not just our breath going over our vocal cords and making noises. It's the expression of our heart. Because you can say a lot, can you not? Can you say a lot without uttering a single breath? You can say a lot. You can... That's why the phrase, you know, speaking under your breath. You can say a lot, but the tongue is a scribal note taker. The tongue, sort of the you that's in you, the, the ego or the, uh, the self, the I, the heart, the center of your being is a note taker. You can jot down a whole lot about someone just by interacting with them without even saying anything verbally. Now the tongue, according to Psalm 52, uh, 57 and 64, is a sword. The tongue is a sword taking lives. Uh, Psalm uh, 140, verse 3, says that the tongue is a venomous poison. 
Um, James says as much as well. Proverbs 6.17 teaches that God hates a lying tongue. God hates a lying tongue. Seven things that are an abomination to him. On the positive side, though, those are all like the negative connotations of the word, the, the tongue. But on the positive side, the tongue is a med kit of sorts, a, a, a first aid kit, bringing healing. Proverbs 12, 18, and then we all saw that here in Proverbs 15, verse 4. And then there's a final metaphor. There are many others, but a, a final metaphor will suffice. Um, Psalm 35, 28 explains, And my tongue shall utter your righteousness and your praise all day long. As a musical instrument, the tongue can praise God or it can praise man. It can pray to God or it can curse man. The tongue is a musical instrument. Um, who can tame the tongue, right? That's the question. Only the one whose heart is inflamed with the holiness of God. I just, I, I didn't have the worst experience in public school. Um, as an athlete, I, you know, had some level of respect from people. But it was always amazing to me to hear the amount of cursings that would come out of someone's mouth. And just flying out, like they're passing out candy at Halloween. Just words that, I mean, you know, the phrase cuss like a sailor, well, there you go, right? And it's just mind-numbing. And now that I'm older and I reflect on that and just think, wow, that's the heart condition can really be raunchy, dripping with envy and, and jealousy and bitterness and slander. And I always just say, look, if you can't come up with any other words to say, it just lets me know that there's not much going on in your head. You're just reacting. You're not very smart. You're actually a fool. And that's what the Bible tells us. So talk. Talk, for example. Talk within a marriage should glorify God. Talk within a marriage should glorify God. As a husband and wife, we have the great privilege of advancing the cultural mandate by being fruitful and multiplying and taking dominion over the earth. Uh, but even the greatest of marriages are not without communication trouble. At any moment, a good marriage could become very difficult by words that are uttered from hearts that are polluted. Talk within a, a, a family should be gracious and meek. Children, listen, if you get anything, Children, you must learn how to glorify God in your speaking. In your speaking in to your, your siblings, speaking to your parents. It's amazing the things that children will say to their parents. I'm talking outside the church, outside the Christian realm. Just shocking things of how they will talk. Children, you must be disciplined in your heart and how you speak to your parents and how you speak to your brother or your sister. Now, what is the goal of our communication? What is the goal? Well, the goal, of course, is to, to, you know, to build up, not to tear down. We, we want to help people stand up in, in the presence of the living God, not cut them down and tear them down and kick them and spit on them when they're on the ground. We want to build up, not tear down. We want to enhance our relationships, um, not cause consternation in them. In Christian community, the aim is the deepening and widening of our experience with the living God. And communication within the body ought to be geared toward this great privilege. The deepening and widening of our experience and our relationship and our commitment to Christ the King and the living God with one another. 
And we must keep in mind, obviously, no one is perfect here. Every single one of us is, is learning to grow and walk in humility with the Lord. Uh, each of us misses the mark from time to time when we say things we shouldn't. So what steps can we take? Here are the five I came up with. First, acknowledge that you live before the face of God each day. If you're someone who struggles with the tongue, acknowledge that you live before the face of God each and every single day. The minute you wake up and the minute you go to sleep, and while you're sleeping, you live before the face of God. And the minute you take your eye off of this most pressing reality is the moment that communication becomes destructive. That's why Proverbs 15 includes, includes verse 3. The eyes of Yahweh are everywhere. Psalm 33:18 says, Behold, the eye of Yahweh is on those who fear Him, on those who wait for His loving kindness. Remember that the book of Judges ends with this. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The reason they did what was right in their own eyes is because they had forgotten the eyes of faith given by the eyes of Yahweh. So if you want to tame the tongue, remember that the Lord has eyes and ears and that He judges accordingly. How many sins could we have prevented if we just stopped and realized, oh yeah, God is literally watching me right now. He's watching me do this, say this. We live quorum Deo, before the face of God, every single day. Number two, make concerted efforts at praying to God to aid your speech. Praying for God to aid your speech. Psalm 141.3 says, Set a guard, O Yahweh, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. That's a prayer right there. Go there, pray it every day. Psalm 141, verse 3. That's a great place to start your prayers. Cry out to God to protect you from sinning with your mouth. The surest way to keep the tongue from setting someone ablaze is to keep the tongue in prayer. The surest way. You want to keep your tongue from setting someone on fire and incinerating them and destroying them, cutting them. Put your tongue to prayer. All of us may, we all say many words in a day. You know, I, I, there's always these funny stats about that. You know, women say like 50,000 words a day, men 10,000, like we're better than that, you know, and I don't know what the stats are. But many of us say many words in a day. What percentage of those are actually prayer? As the Valley of Vision prayer says, may my improvements correspond to my privileges. That is, what we have in the gospel ought to direct the heart, which in turn directs our speech. And when those things line up, we do well. A man who makes time for prayer has no time for idle speech. Number three, forsake unrighteous murmuring complaining, and anger. To forsake something is to cast it off, to see it as un the unholy filth that, is, that it is, right? You're tempted to, to say something with your tongue, you shouldn't. Stop. Wait, that's evil, that's filthiness, that's disgusting. It's like, it's the, the worst of the worst of vomits that I have just, I'm about to say. I'm going to forsake that. I'm going to cast it off. You see it as evil. And that's part of the change process we saw last week. No one, listen, no one is entitled to complaining or murmuring. No one. You're not entitled to it. I get to complain because this happened to me and I'm a victim and it was wrong. No, you're not entitled to that. 
Philippians 2.14 says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. It's so basic. None of us have a right to it. None of us has the right to unrighteous anger exhibited in unwholesome speech. Yeah, I cursed at them. They deserved it. Look what they did to me. See, complainers and grumblers make people very uncomfortable. Complainers and grumblers make people uncomfortable. They cause division in, in, in relationships, cause division in their own heart. But rather than heal and, and dive deep into the bond of Christ, this sort of behavior drives a wedge between anyone and everyone. Uh, the person given over to gossip or slander and grumbling is someone who has lost the purpose of the friendship, the purpose of the marriage, the purpose of that relationship. Number four, repent for sinful words and seek forgiveness. This is sort of like after something has happened, when the first three things failed and you didn't do it, and you did it. Now, you, now we're at here. Repent for sinful words. Having forsaken those unhealthy sinful patterns, see them as the danger that they are, and we may now actually repent and we may seek restitution for the words we've said. Speaking sinful words is like sowing salt on the field of a community. It, it, it destroys the fruit, it makes the bar land barren, and leaves everyone feeling deserted. When words are said, many will try to take it back. Have you ever said something? You said, I take it back. I take it back. Or, or, or like, I'm gonna, I took the words back and I'm pushing them back in. <laughs> you can't do that, by the way. It's not a thing. I mean, it's a thing in the unbelieving world, but in the Christian worldview, it's not a thing. See, when people say that, what they fail to realize is that, one, what's done is done. You said it. You already opened up your heart. See? Nope, just kidding. Unsee that. <laughs> Unhear that. You can't do it. Two, why would you want that filth back in your heart anyway? I'm going to put that back in. No, 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 no. <laughs> you don't want that in your heart anyway. See, it came from the heart to begin with. You don't stuff it back in. There's no, there's no recourse other than repentance and restitution. You can't just undo it. There's no delete button on this. There's no magic, you know, men in black flash their eyes and they forget everything. That's not a thing. It's just science fiction. So the only way forward, the only way you have forward when you have said something cutting and sinful, the only way is repentance. That's the only thing you can do. A lamenting over your sin before the living God, a petitioning to God in prayer, asking for ab absolution, and a seeking of forgiveness from the, from the offended party. Not just saying, oh, I'm sorry I said that. I sinned. This is what I did. This was wrong. The Bible says not to do it. What I should have done was this. Will you forgive me? We'll get into the handling conflict thing next week. But that's what should be done. Last, number five. Rehearse words of encouragement, comfort, and edification. Rehearse words of encouragement, comfort, and edification. Uh, we, we've, we've kind of done this before, but uh, I know other people have done that too. You know, a child says something mean about their sister. Okay, well now you need to tell, tell them three things you love about them. And you have to do restitution, and you're actually replacing that heart feeling of anger, sinful, unrighteous, whatever it was, and you're saying, wait, I'm right with God, I have the gospel, I have forgiveness, I do love you, and here's how I love you. And you, you name that, you replace those words with encouragement, comfort, edification. Intentionality begets ha habituation, 
right? When you're intentional with something, you then develop into a habit. That's how it works. And when we go, when we go, go through this process of change, um, especially and specifically for taming the, taming the tongue, the last step is that training in righteousness. Practice using the tongue for righteous purposes. Whether you struggle with anger and just wanting to use your words to cut someone or you know, whatever it is, or whether you struggle with gossip or simply just idle, foolish talk, the way out ends where the habit begins. Now, who among us here could not benefit from a piece of encouragement from someone? Anybody, anybody in here overly encouraged? You just have too much in your life. Like, I am so full of encouragement because other people pour into me. It's just, I, I spill it out. No, none of us are there, right? Who among us could not benefit from more of that? Who among us couldn't be comforted during an affliction if we knew that someone was praying for us? And not just, I'll pray for you and then you never do. I'll pray for you. Let me stop what I'm doing right now and pray for you. Who among us wouldn't be edified by something the Lord is, is showing you from his word? See, far, off, far too often we, we miss the simple things like being quick to listen first rather than being so quick to speak. Instead of vomiting your agenda, what if we asked each other what it is the Lord is doing in each of us? What, what has God taught you lately? What is God teaching you right now? You know, are, are, are we applying such things? Are we reading the word? Are we reading good books? Are we talking about it? Are we doing those sort of thing, things? If, if, if someone is strongly, struggling with something, are you there to pray for them? To, to aid in their sanctification? If you're, if you're genuinely interested in the well-being of others, then encouragement, comfort, and edification will be the first thing to fly out of your mouth. And practice is required. <laughs> no one just signs up for the Olympics. Practice is required, especially if you want to be, it to be like this unconscious habit. I want to unconsciously respond to people in a way that's encouraging, comforting, and edifying. You don't just do that. It requires practice. It requires discipline. That's why we call it the spiritual disciplines. Prayer, the Word, perhaps fasting for a purpose, you know, uh, all of those things. And taming the tongue requires that we listen well, listen first, and listen thoroughly. It requires that we know the scriptures. We need to know the Lord in prayer and know how to foster genuine, authentic friendship. And that said, I want to I give you a filter. And this is especially important in our parenting. And so this is a great tool for you in your home. Before you speak, filter your speech. Five questions you can ask. First one, is it true? Is it true? If not, we may be bearing false witness and violating the commands of God. If it's not true, then it doesn't comport with righteousness. The Bible commands us to love truth, Psalm 15, 1 and 2. But even everything that is true doesn't even have to be said, right? Just because it's true doesn't mean now I have a license to let it fly out of my mouth. In fact, again, the wise man is going to hold back his speech. So is it true? So kids, this is a great lesson for you too, like, before you speak, is it something that's true? Second, is it necessary to say? If it's necessary, then it better be either godly mockery of the wicked, confrontation due to some sin or obtuseness, 
or it needs to be encouragement flowing from grace. If it isn't absolutely necessary, then don't say it. Three, is it helpful? Is it helpful and for whom? If it's helpful, it better be gauged by the listener's needs. That's how you know if it's helpful. Because if you're saying something to help you, then you don't have control over your spirit. You're a person of folly. It should be something helpful to the person, not helpful to you. Because oftentimes we think something's helpful for us and it's not for them. But we're going to just say it anyway and justify it. Number four, is it kind and loving? And it, and it may be the kindest thing to rebuke a stubborn man. It may be. I mean, it's the kindest thing to confront someone with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a kind thing to rescue preborn babies. It's a kind thing to stand against wickedness and tyranny. And it's loving, too. So it may be the most loving thing to call out the sin of a believer or even the unbeliever, but, but even our day-to-day -day is prone to unkind and unloving speech. The basic rule in the mind of the Apostle Paul is this. Speech is either building up or tearing down, so choose wisely. That's Ephesians 4.29. And lastly, number five, is it gracious? Is your speech gracious? Meaning, is it favorable to someone? Is it compassionate towards those in need? Grace, when we speak of God's relationship to man, grace speaks of an uncoerced initiative of love, favor, and self-sacrifice for the betterment of the other. That's how Aquinas framed uh, a love, seeking the good of the other. Grace is free and is thus to be freely given. It is to be received with gratitude. It is to be received with worship. It is to be received with obedience. So is it gracious? That'll be the last category. So our speech should glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our King and our Lord. He's given us hearts inflamed with the gospel. So those things should line up. Let's pray. Father, we've covered a lot of ground tonight, and your word says a whole lot about this particular topic, and I, I pray that your spirit would, would reveal to us the condition of our hearts, that we would uh, truly know how our hearts are functioning and not just put forward that false self, putting on a front or a mask as an analogy that we are familiar with. Lord, I pray that you would help us to tame the tongue, to be righteous, not just in our behavior, but, but in what we're saying and even thinking, Lord, because even you know our thoughts. And I pray, God, we would stand for righteousness, that our speech would be winsome and, and wise and full of knowledge and full of, full of, of benefit for others. So, Lord, as we, as we partake of communion, as we sing, as we... Uh, our commission for the week, God, we ask you to be glorified in our speech. In Christ's name we pray, amen.